We're willing to mix with one another, but we do not want to become peoples of mixed race. This is a statement by Hungary's Prime Minister, Mr. Viktor Orban, during his recent visit to Romania. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a complex question. Um, the Hungarians have never really been anything but a mixed people. They've always interacted with their neighbors, intermarried with their neighbors. Mm -hmm. Ethnically, um, the Hungarians, you know, like, genetically, you could even say, look a lot like the people around them. Um, and many Hungarians, you know, might say used to be something else. So my, you know, my grandfather was born in Eastern Hungary and, you know, he spoke Hungarian and, and saw himself as, as Hungarian before he came to the United States. But his, it, you know, his ancestors were Romanian and spoke Romanian. Right. So this is yeah. a key thing that Hungary in the Middle Ages was a, a large kingdom. It encompassed, let say, Croatia, um, parts of, of Serbia, Romania, Ukraine, Slovakia, even parts of Austria. There are two capitals. There's two Olympic teams. Um, this was decisive. And they spent the interwar period trying to undo this treaty. Um, and it remains very much alive today, especially under the, the current government. This is something that um, they have really emphasized. In some ways, the Hungarians are great, obsessive curators of their own history. Obsessive. Um, oh, I love that. Did you know that a key point to know about Hungarians is their language? That it's very different from the languages spoken by their neighbors. And this has created a powerful aspect of their self-identity and of being alone and apart. Hey there, News Peelers. Today's September 2, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. In the early days of August, just last month, Hungary's Prime Minister Orban gave his speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, in Dallas, during which he said, it's fantastic to be here in Texas, the lone star state of the United States of America. Then he added that Texas and Hungary have something in common, because Hungary is the lone star state of Europe. According to the New York Times, Mr. Orban received a heroic welcome at CPAC. And the Wall Street Journal says that his mixed-race speech in Romania back in July has not diminished his appeal 
among far-right conservatives, quite the opposite. Yet for others, Mr. Orban's statements are inflammatory and his methods are controversial and polarizing, not the least his zero-immigration policy, which he describes as the decisive and final battle of the future. So, all of this made me wonder, is Hungary a country of mixed-race people or not? Is Hungary of today, its borders, its people, their religion and language, the same or drastically different than the Hungary of the past? Of course, to better understand all of this, we have to learn at least a little about Hungary's history. And to do that, I spoke with Dr. Robert Nemish, who is a professor of history at Colgate University and has been visiting Budapest since soon after the fall of the Berlin Wall, where he could still see bullet-ridden buildings from the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. He's the author of The Once and Future Budapest and also the author of Another Hungary, the 19th Century Provinces in Eight Lives. He's also co-editor of Sites of European Antisemitism in the Age of Mass Politics, 1880-1918. To learn more about Dr. Nemish, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Nemish and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Nimish, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I want to start our discussion with something foundational, frankly. So here it goes. Who are Hungarians? Uh, thanks for the, the question and thanks for having me on the show. It's a my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Um, the Hungarians um, are a people who appeared on the scene well over a thousand years ago. They appeared as one of the many tribes, groups of people emerging from the East. And you know they, they weren't the first and they certainly weren't the last. Uh, what is somewhat surprising, remarkable, is that they ended up establishing a, a kingdom in the year 1000. And it is the ancestor or the, the forerunner of today's Hungary. So the Hungarians as a people have been there for a long time and their state in many different forms has been there uh, as well. Why did you pick a millennium ago, a thousand years ago? What was in this land that we call Hungary before that? Uh, it was many things. You know, there have been people living there for tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. More recently, it was the western part of the country was part of the Roman Empire. It was you know, the, the Danube River, uh, which today divides Hungary, divided the, the Roman Empire mm -hmm. from its, you know, what was not sort the, of the northern border. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the Romans were there. Then a whole bunch of other people passed through the Huns, Gepids, Avars, a group of people sometimes called the Forgotten Barbarians. Um, forgotten <laughs> Barbarians, I love that. You know, ones that we haven't necessarily heard about. Um, and then you know, the Hungarians arrived in the late 800s. Um, the date that was you know, later settled upon was 896. Um, we know this because in 1896, so the 
thousandth anniversary, they they held a huge millennial celebration in Budapest. It was like a world's fair. So 896 is sometimes seen as the date when the Hungarians appeared, not just on the scene, because they had been in around the Black Sea and, and other places before then, but this is when they arrive in you know, what will later become Hungary and some of the surrounding states. I want to go back and, and, and just ask a question about the forgotten, the phrase you use, forgotten barbarians. Sure. Um, from history books and even from movies, uh, you hear about Attila the Hun. Right. Was he Hungarian? No, no, but um, a lot of people connected them. Uh, Is the name just... Hungary from, from his <clears throat> name? No, it's not. It it um, comes from a probably a Turkic word. Mm -hmm. the, the origins of Hungarian are, are somewhat murky, but one interpretation has a Turkic word meaning ten arrows, or perhaps oh, wow. ten tribes. And the, the thinking is that the Hungarians were part of a larger confederation of ten tribes. Interesting. Um, is a figure like let's say Attila the Hun, someone that Hungarians celebrate, consider one of their own, sort of their pri answers, or no? Is that some someone from the East that doesn't really play a major role in Hungary's modern perception of their own history? I don't know about the modern perception, mm -hmm. but certainly um, Attila the Hun was he made a name for himself, right? <laughs> for, you know, yeah, yeah. Right, that this scourge of God. Yeah. So he, his name was out there and he was remembered hundreds of years later when the Hungarians arrived and, and some people called them Hungarians and remembered the Huns. So they were easily confused. Both of them too were, you know, these fierce warriors coming from the East, um, skilled on horseback, very mobile, you know, terrorizing large parts of, of Europe for a long time. So there, you know, the, the connection was not arbitrary. Um, there was no real connection between them. But what's interesting is that later, when in the Middle Ages, when people began writing histories and, and somewhat fanciful histories, a number of people connected the Huns and the Hungarians, and, and this stuck. So one name for what would later become Buda, a key part of Budapest, was Etzelberg. This is the German name, and that literally translates as Attila's town. So oh wow! So the you know the Germans said you know like well Attila the Hun was in this area, and he surely had a, a city, and it was right here. And and so you know there there's this connection made and then the hungarians themselves picked up on this and they began saying well our kings are you know related to the huns it simply was a case that everyone likes having you know if you're going to have a family tree you know it's good to have like some you know fancy names in there and attila the hun had lost some of his negative connotations and simply become a, a over the centuries yeah yeah so it became a name to conjure with so it was appropriate. The fact that the Huns had been in, you know, what is today Hungary in this region also lent legitimacy to the Hungarians occupying the area. So, you know, by claiming the Huns, they claimed a luminous ancestor and also said, oh, yeah, you know, like our ancestors were in this area centuries ago. So it was it did a, a whole lot of work for them.
So just a, a mere case of coincidence that the name Hungary sort of sounds alike with the name Huns, but it doesn't necessarily associate from it, drive from them. Yeah, um, so they settle in the about into a kingdom. They create a kingdom about a thousand years ago, um, and they they have their millennium celebration in 1896. Um, what is this kingdom? Is this a pagan kingdom? Is this a Christian kingdom? How do they how do they sort of religiously, racially, ethnically um, define themselves at that point? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a, a great question. Um, so the Hungarians were what we would call pagans, right? That's mm. where most people in Europe and certainly in Central and Eastern Europe at that time. Um, and they are you know, very present in, in the region for a, a century or more. And they have a series of, of chieftains slash kings. Um, and you know, the, the, they, after some military, military defeats in the, the 900s, they more or less become sedentary in what they call the Carpathian Basin. That is mm -hmm. the, you know, the area girded by the Carpathian Mountains, the large basin that today encompasses Hungary, parts of Romania, um, Croatia, and then you know the, the mountainous regions that would be Slovakia and again Romania. So it's this is where they, they settle down. And Christianity becomes an option. It's certainly an option. Why do you say an option? Wasn't it forced like Charlemagne beating down on, you know, how Charlemagne was beating down on the Germanic tribes on the north? Thou shall become Christian. That wasn't the case towards Hungary. No, because Christian, because Hungary, um, you know, it certainly had suffered some military setbacks, but it was not, you know, uh, Christianity was not being brought by the sword. Missionaries were present. Uh huh. Um, there were powerful neighbors with Byzantium, you know, and the, the, to the south, and then, you know, what would be the, the Holy Roman Empire, the Germanic states to the west, who had adopted Christianity and were pushing their versions of it. So Western Christianity and then Eastern Christianity. Um, but there was not a, a given thing that, that the Hungarians would necessarily adopt Christianity. Nonetheless, this ruler of theirs, um, was born Vyk, V-A-Y-K, but became Stephen. Adopted, oh, a Christian name. Right. Adopted Christianity. And in return, received a crown from the Pope. And, legitimacy. Right, legitimacy. And this is his coronation, which happened either at the end of the year 1000, or the very beginning of year 1001 is seen as the beginning of the the mod or the the Hungarian state. I see. So, so state building and Christianity, royal power and Christianity go hand in hand in Hungary. So this is what it looks like at the beginning. And is this king and this kingdom what Hungarians now associate themselves with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think they would see continuity from um, that state. Linguistically, 
Hungarians are they? Is this a are they a Slavic people? No, this is a, a key thing to know about the Hungarians and Hungary. Even um, they speak a, a language which is uh, not even Indo-European. It's part of a Finno-Ugric language family. But no, they're nowhere within proximity on Finland or anything like that. That's interesting. They are, Finnish and Estonian are distant relatives, but related to Hungarian. Oh, wow. So they speak a language which is very different from that of their neighbors. It's different from Romanian, which is a Romance language, from mm -hmm. Slovak and, and uh, Croatian, which are Slavic languages. They speak a language which is you know, their own. Completely with different roots than, let's say, Ukraine's and Belarus and all those other countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, has that historically created created a self awareness for them as different than the yeah. rest? They're not Germanic. They're not Slavic. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, <laughs> they're related to uh, yeah, so you know, to the Finns and Estonians and to some you know, sort of uh, pastoral people in, in central, you know, near the Ural Mountains. That's you know, seemingly their homeland. Yeah, this has created a real um, powerful sense of identity. And, and so even as they adopted, you know, Western Christianity, um, which would link them to their many of their neighbors, to Poland, to Austria, to Croatia, um, even as they established a, a state which had relations with, you know, other states within Europe, um, this sense of, of being a, alone and apart because of the language has been a very powerful uh, feature of, of Hungarian history and Hungarian culture and Hungarian identity. And, you know, you can say that the survival of this language in the, <laughs> the middle of Europe is really quite a remarkable thing. It really is. I mean, you know, you have Russia there, you have Germany and Austria there, and, and you have the Turks to the south. So right. uh, they and they were able to uh, perpetuate their their language. Um, when you say uh, they they adopted Western Christianity, are we talking about Catholicism uh, or Protestantism? Catholicism and Protestantism yeah. would come later. The Reformation would have a deep impact on, on Hungary, but um, it was and remains a majority Catholic country, we might say, Roman Catholic country. So are there any minority groups that live in uh, Hungary that would associate themselves I don't know, differently? They speak a different language or have a different religion? Uh, the Hungary has, from the beginning, has had a mix of people and, and even a mix of religions. Any of them substantial now? Today, much less so. Today, Hungary is a relatively homogenous country. Oh, wow. Um, Certainly, the the experience since World War One and then World War Two with the Holocaust and the expulsion of many ethnic Germans, Hungary has been a relatively homogenous country in the sense of most people speaking 
Hungarian and feeling ethnically Hungarian. Um, and most people to the extent that they're religious being Christian. So when um, uh, Prime Minister, and I'm not getting into politics, I'm just uh, uh, yeah, yeah. want to give some context. So when Prime Minister Orban says something to the effect that we're not a mixed people, um, to the extent that that is correct, he's that statement is couched in in, in current in, in in their current composition, right? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a complex question. Um, the Hungarians have never really been anything but a mixed people. They've always interacted with their neighbors, intermarried with their neighbors. Mm -hmm. you know, ethnically, um, the Hungarians, you know, like genetically, you could even say, look a lot like the people around them. Um, and many Hungarians you might say used to be something else. So my, you know, my grandfather was born in Eastern Hungary and, you know, he spoke Hungarian and, and saw himself as, as Hungarian before he came to the United States. But his, you know, his ancestors were Romanian and spoke Romanian. Um, Interesting. Eastern Orthodox. So, you know, he's, you know, he was a, felt himself to be fully Hungarian, but, you know, had Romanian roots. And, and many people in Hungary are similar, have, you know, similar kinds of, of you know, uh, different peoples in their, their um, families, whether it's Slovak, Croatian, German. It's so, you know, the Hungarians, like almost all Europeans, are, are mixed people. But, the, you know, the language is one thing that, that defines them and does separate them from their neighbors um creates creates some commonality and and yeah. and and sort of fortifies a sense of nationhood for them right and so to back to your your point one could say you know what what prime minister orban is is talking about does make sense to the lived experience of many hungarians who might not see themselves or might not think to the you know, the real complexities of the, um, you know, the centuries of Hungarian history, yeah. where waves of immigration, migration, um, assimilation, disassimilation, and, and all these things. The lived experience of the last century has been a relatively homogenous country. Um, but the deeper history, and even individuals and their family histories is much more complex He's just not emphasizing that part. It's sort of there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's politics for you. They pick and choose what they right. want to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about Hungary's history, the Middle Ages. And Professor Nemesh, uh, I shared my excitement with you before about this 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 um, uh, particular uh, period. So can't wait to get into it. We'll be right back. In this episode, Dr. Nemesh informs us that one of Hungary's kings was also the king of Poland. Similar to Hungary's, Poland's history of Middle Ages is a bit of a mystery to most of us Americans. That's why in Season 2, Episode 19, I spoke with Professor Frost about the history of the Polish-Lithuanian Empire, a country that no longer exists, but was once the largest and most populous nation in Europe. We produced that episode because Poland was on the news in relation to the war in Ukraine. And as you'll note from my conversation with Professor Frost, 
Poland profoundly influenced Ukraine, its history, religion, and people. The link for that episode, along with links to episodes on who are Ukrainians and also on Finland's wars against Russia, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. By the way, in case you didn't catch it, Finland is linguistically related to Hungary, even though they are not neighbors or even geographically close. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Nemish about Hungary's history. Professor Nemish, Hungary's history in the Middle Ages is simply fascinating. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a vast period and we can't touch on everything. So what are the some, you know, some of the highlights? I think, um, <clears throat> like all periods in Hungarian history, there's some good times and some bad times. Yeah, that's an understatement, right? Right, right. The, the you know, the good times are the, the, overall picture is one of relative success. Hungary was a, say, a medium power in, in Europe, um, a kingdom that survived for hundreds of years, um, a source of much of Europe's and the world's gold and silver at that time, and a source of, which was a source of great wealth. Um, so mining operations out of, the, out of Hungary. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Gold and silver mines were really a, uh, very important. Okay. And uh, a period in which the population continued to grow, and that's a rough barometer of a, their success. And wealth and health. Right, wealth and health, and and the kingdom continued to expand its borders. So, from you know, that perspective, this was there was much uh, to celebrate about medieval Hungary. The, there were some low points, the Mongol invasion. <laughs> oh, boy. The collapse of the uh, medieval empire at the, in the 1500s might be the most obvious ones. By the way, uh, with respect to the Mongol in, invasion, I find it really fascinating that you say throughout the Middle Ages, uh, Hungary experienced population growth. And this is in spite the fact that in the first Mongol invasion, Half of their population perished, were murdered essentially by the Mongols. And then they also had the Black Death at some point. So they had all these hits on their population, yet overall the population grew. This is pretty fascinating. This is spectacular, in fact, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would just one. So the Mongols invaded in 1241, mm -hmm. um, and it was a. Uh, uh, a smashing blow. They came. They came in and um, defeated the Hungarians at the Battle of Muhi in 1241. Um, the Hungarian king <laughs> wisely decided to retreat, so he retreated to the other end of his kingdom, all the way to Dalmatia on the Adriatic coast, and, and oh wow, sort of waited out the Mongols from there. Wait, uh, uh, Hungary's border went all the way to the Adriatic coast back then. Yes, it included. Um, what was then and now uh, Croatia, and Croatia had the part on the. Wow, that's significantly larger than the yes. current map. Okay, right. So this is yeah. a key thing that Hungary in the Middle Ages was a, a large kingdom. It encompassed, let's say, Croatia, um, parts of of Serbia, Romania, Ukraine, Slovakia, even parts of Austria. 
So it was a. So why do you call that a kingdom? That's like an empire. Well, yeah, they they were kings though. That's what they were kings. That's what they call them. So yeah, but it's it's, yeah. yeah. So you have this invasion. What happens? The Mongols settle or? No, this is it's a bit of a mystery. Um, They it seems to not have been. uh, It seems to have been a punitive um, expedition. Punitive, okay. Mongols were seem to have been angry at the Hungarians for sheltering <laughs> one of their enemies, a group called the Cumans, okay, who had taken refuge in Hungary. And so the Mongols launched an expedition there, but they also attacked Poland in the same year. This was steppe warfare. They overran much of Eastern Hungary after this uh, successful battle, but had a tougher time of it in Western Hungary where they ran up against uh, fortified castles and towns and, and didn't enjoy as much success. And yet just a, a year after they had arrived, they departed and it well, was something why? of a deliverance. Well, that's the question. Um, <laughs> one, you know, the, one explanation is that the Khan had the great Khan had died in in Central Asia, and that the Mongol leaders wanted to get back and um, jockey for a position in the succession Christ struggle. Uh, but there are other explanations. One is that this was simply a you know a, uh, an expedition to sort of try things out in preparation for a more major expedition. But there's also these kind of fun not fun, but uh, interesting environmental explanations, which yep. suggests that the you know, the Mongols came in with this huge you know, cavalry army that needed to be fed. And for whatever reason... Were they experiencing climate change in Hungary? Yeah, well, maybe not climate change, but bad weather or something like that, that Hungary, they were afraid that, that Hungary couldn't basic, couldn't... Uh, you know, feed all their animals, all their horses. And so oh, they were wow. because there simply wasn't enough, you know, uh, grass for them, like fields and meadows to, to, to feed yeah. on. So I did mean, they come I, back? Uh, they came back um, in 1780. There, there were a series of raids that continued for a long time. There was a, a major expedition in 1785. Uh, I'm sorry, 1285. 1285. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah 1285. Um, but this uh, did not succeed um, in part because the Hungarians had learned their lessons after the, the first invasion and had built fortified castles, um, had built up their army and were much more prepared to, to meet this threat. And also because uh, the Mongols seem not to have invested everything in this invasion in 1285. Um, it was not as well planned, it seemed, as the one in 1241. So this is a success from the, the Hungarian point of view, less so from the Mongol perspective. Is this Mongol invasion um, something that endures in Hungarian histories, or, you know, what they talk about in school and kids. I know the Mongol invasion or the Tamerlane invasion in the Middle East and the right. and, and, and the Caucasus and Central Asia is something that people talk about like in every day. Like you do this, Mo- Mongols are going to come and get you. Uh, I've read this in many books. Uh, is, is, is this still alive in hung- Hungary's history? 
Uh, yes. I mean, I think the, you know, historians who look at this have a much more nuanced view of what happened. Even the, the percentage of people that ha were killed has been questioned. Uh, we really don't know for sure, but 50% seems like that uh, maybe too high. Other I mean, 50% of uh, Hungary's population. Right. right. Wow. Other, other wow. historians have suggested that Hungary's case was not so different from that of other surrounding states. And it's quite likely that for a while, Hungary became a, a vassal of the, the Mongol Empire and paid tribute to them. So historians are willing to see this as part of you know what happened at the edges of the Mongol Empire. And there's some really great historians working on this. The collective memory, uh, so the popular memory of this is as a national disaster. 1241 yeah. is one in a series of bad years <laughs> in Hungarian history. And, you know, not without justification. This was yeah. a disastrous attack. Um, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but you know, there are these defeats in Hungarian history, and this was certainly one of them. And so one of them that stands out. Right, remembered as um, you know, a, a disaster. Um, so yeah, the, the memory of it is largely negative. That's fair to say. But the second time they succeeded, so that's got to be some, you know, rallying point for nationalism that, look, if we, we, we repelled them the second time they came back. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, the king, uh, Bela IV, who's the, the king who, who, you know, chooses to, to retreat in 1241, but then rallies the country afterwards is known as the second founder because he rebuilt the Hungarian state. Oh, wow. Seen as a... You know, one could describe it as a test that the Hungarian state passed, right? This devastating blow lands on them, and yet they're man they managed to rebuild their state and regain their footing um, in the wake of this. So, in the in the couple of minutes that we have left, is there anything other sort of salient highlights that s stick out for you? In this period, again, it's a vast period, and a lot happened. But anything sure. else you like to share? Hungary is um, fortunate the... to have some great kings mm -hmm. um, and kings that really make uh, Hungary a European power. Somewhat, um, one king is also the king of Poland. One king is also the Holy Roman Emperor. Oh so wow! We have these distant connections, and then the most famous king from this period. Um, is called King Matthias, mm -hmm. uh, Matthias Corvinus. And it's his, the, the main church in, in Budapest, the one up on the hill in Buda, in the, the mm -hmm. middle of the castle, this beautiful church is you know, named after him or known, it's you know, like an official name is, is the Matthias Church. And there's a lot of um, imagery inside that, that remembers him. By the way, when you say Budapest, was yeah. as i understand it budapest is a is, is a combination of two cities two municipalities however oh. um what first of all am i correct on that well there's actually three but there's oh, three. Uh, oh, okay wow even more so was respect <laughs> <laughs> which one doesn't get respect <laughs> there's something called o buddha or old buddha which oh. is a small settlement just the upriver from Buda. Uh -huh. So Buddha and Pest are on the two sides of the Danube River. And there's a third part that 
you know, like formally unites. And when they, they, don't, would... they don't get much love. So yeah. at this at this point that you're talking about King Matthias, was yeah. Budapest formed as such as a major metropolitan or were they just separate towns then? Uh, it, they had existed earlier. They really rise to prominence actually after the Mongols. The, mm. the king draws the wise conclusion that having a, you know, a castle on a hill is a safe defense against people like the Mongols. And so Buddha, which features this, you know, this hill right by the river becomes fortified after that and really becomes increasingly becomes the, the seat of the king and the seat of government. It's not the only one, but it is an important political and even military center. So the rise of Budapest dates from this point. Matthias um, builds, rebuilds the castle there, builds it up and builds this beautiful palace. Um, so this is sort of a, a golden era for Budapest is his reign in the um, golden era for Budapest. Um, we're talking about uh, kings uh, and, and those yeah. stand out, such as King Matthias. I've vaguely come across um, references to first constitution in continental Europe from Hungary or elected kings. Are these some, some stuff that are relevant from that period? Yeah, there's um, a number of ways of looking at this, but the um, the medieval history of Hungary, like a lot of Europe, is um, to some extent a struggle between the king and the barons and maybe the, the rest of the lords or nobles. Um, and this is something that plays out in powerful ways in, in Hungary as well. Um, one sign of this, one important landmark here is the the Golden Bull of 1222. And golden this Bull, okay. The Golden Bull, um, given its name because it gets this beautiful gold seal on it. That's what it's, <laughs> uh, it's not the only Golden Bull in Europe, but it's Hungary's Golden Bull. And this comes... Is it know, like their Magna Carta of some sort? It is like their Magna Carta, and the, the Hungarians are quick to make that comparison. I bet. It is something that um, limits the power of the king, um, gives uniform rights to all noblemen. What's, what, what century is this? This is the th uh, 13th century. It's 1222. So, so early in history. I mean, uh, I mean, it's it, it sort of... Uh, around the same time as England, but for continental Europe, this is way ahead of, let's say, France, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, it is, I think you can think of it as an important constitutional yeah. limit on royal power um, and on the power That's of a the, big deal. the lords. So it's it's important. It's not the end of the story. But it's a uh, you know it's an important moment I think and precedent. The problem with having these podcasts, uh, Professor Nemish, is that we never get to the end of the story. <laughs> we would be here for hours. In the, in, the, in the next twenty seconds that we have left of this segment, I I have a limited question about the Ottoman period. Yeah. Like the Mongols. 
the autumn is at that point where a completely different kind of people. I mean, I know at some point Slavic soldiers and of the Ottoman Empire were stationed in Hungary, but still the empire was an Eastern empire, if you will. There were non-Christians. Uh-huh. Um, how do Hungarians view that period, especially now with everything that's going on, nationalism and populism in Hungary? Yeah, again, I mean, the, the simple response is they view it negatively, mm-hmm. right? This is seen as um, the moment when a flourishing medieval kingdom that covered a big part of the map um, was divided in three and occupied um, for 150 years. So the this is seen as... Um, a negative moment in Hungarian history. We'll be right back after a short break. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Nemesh, I want to talk about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And my question is actually quite simple here. (laughs) How did this happen? How did the storied, sort of mighty, wealthy Habsburg Empire share their power with non-Germanic people here? Well, the, the Habsburg monarchy had always been, Habsburg lands had always been non-Germanic. They'd include a large number of Slavs and uh, Italians and others, but... But the Habsburgs were sort of ascendant. They were, they held on to the mate, the, the power, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were the Holy Roman emperors. Um, they had a clay, they got their foot in the door in 1526, which is a big year in Hungarian history. This is when the main Hungarian army led by its king lost a decisive battle to the Ottomans and created um, a really uncertain state in Hungary. And it takes a while to be settled, but the long and the short of it is that the Habsburgs assert control over the northeastern part of what had been the Hungarian kingdom. The Ottomans are in one part and then Transylvania is its own principality under the vassal of the Ottomans. But this means that the Habsburgs are there and they assert a claim to the whole of the Hungarian kingdom. It takes them several failed campaigns and sieges uh, to really uh, put teeth into this claim. But in the late 1600s, they coordinate efforts and, and lead an army to expel the Ottomans from Hungary. So they basically capture Hungary and assert control over the kingdom of Hungary. 
And so from 1526 onward, and certainly, you know, for part of Hungary and then from late 1600s onward for all of the Hungarian kingdoms, the Habsburgs are in the saddle. And this lasts all the way up until 1918, the end of World War I. At some point, though, the Austrian Empire becomes the Austro-Hungarian Empire. How, how does that happen? As, as you say, they were in the saddle. So how, how did they, why did they sh share power with Hungarians? And is this a big moment for Hungary? Right. I mean, the, the, the pattern, uh, the, the relationships between Habsburgs and the Hungarian leadership or the Hungarian, even the Hungarian people to some extent is never an easy one. There's a series of um, rebellions or wars against the Habsburgs over the centuries, which often lead to a kind of settlement or compromise. Um, when we think of Austria-Hungary, we're thinking of the last 40 years of the monarchy, basically from 1867, when there's the so-called compromise or agreement between Austria and Hungary. And this, you could say, is a result of a number of things, but most obviously the 1848 revolution, which was a huge revolution across Europe. Yeah, yeah. And one of its center was in Hungary. And the Hungarians, you know, lose the battle but win the war in the sense that they do not succeed in 1848, 1849, although they fight bitterly. But they gain much of what they had fought for in 1867 in this settlement with the Habsburg king. And that creates what is known as Austria-Hungary. But the So the, how equal is this equal partnership? Was it really equal? Uh, equal might not be the right word, but <laughs> you could say that Hungary has a significant degree of autonomy um, and control over its internal or domestic affairs within the monarchy. I see. Um, were so, there two capitals or was it was everything still happening in Vienna? There are two capitals. There's two Olympic teams when they have those. Oh, wow. This is a big deal. Yeah, I think it was the Olympic yeah. of 1896 or something, if I, if I have the date. Right. Um, so we have World War I. This, I, I just, I, I, I've come across this very interesting and also devastating passage. After World War One, Hungary just loses so much land and population. Um, I have some stats here: loss of seventy-one percent of its territory, fifty-eight percent of its population, thirty-two percent of its ethnic Hungarians. How how did that happen? It went from a very large country to what's the history behind that? Well, this was. They lost the war. Yeah. Yeah. Was the, the <laughs> Is this President Wilson's fault? <laughs> uh, and then they lost the peace, right? They, yeah. they, um, this was the peace treaty they signed with the victorious powers. The Treaty of Trianon put down these terms. And this has been much discussed. And the, the cause of this are somewhat complicated, but have to do with the fact that... Um, the surrounding countries or this, this new states emerged around them, um, Czechoslovakia, 
Yugoslavia, Romania gained in size. And this is something that certainly France wanted. They wanted strong countries in Eastern Europe as a buffer against Germany. Um, so they didn't favor the Hungarians. And these countries had uh, armies and they occupied territory. And it also was true that in uh, the post-war period, Hungary was in a state of political turmoil. And part of that involved a, a short-lived communist um, government. And that also scared the yeah. <laughs> victorious powers a little bit. Right after the Bolshevik revolution starting right. in 1917. So, so is, the, is, is this, uh, pardon me for the interruption, is oh. this, uh, you know, colossal loss of territory and population and ethnic Hungarians, is this, has this had a lingering psychological impact uh, on, on Hungary? Uh, yes, I think you, you could say that it has. Um, I'm a little leery of sort of applying psychology, words like trauma to an entire mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. um, and what this treaty meant depends on who you're talking to and at what time, right? For uh, some of the poor peasants, you know, living on a, uh, an estate in the middle of Hungary, the this treaty may not have been very meaningful, but for Hungary's, Hungary's leading classes, um, this was decisive. And they spent the interwar period trying to undo this treaty. Um, and it remains very much alive today, especially under the, the current government. This is something that um, they have really emphasized, this Treaty of Trianon. Um, you talked about that inter war period uh you know 1919 to 1939 um was this deep dissatisfaction with the outcome of world war one one of the reasons why hungary sided with germany joined joined germany in world war ii yes yes yeah germany quite simply offered them um territory and ter they were, allowed them to regain territory at the expense of Czechoslovakia, Romania, and then later Yugoslavia. And that helped push Hungary into the German camp. And that itself has a sad and, and devastating history about uh, uh, how many Hungarians died and the destruction and also um, um, extermination of their Jewish population, correct? Yes, that is. Yeah. Certainly the case. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Nimish as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Nemesh, you said your grandfather uh, is Hungarian, and uh, I know you've visited Hungary many times. Um, so, you know, we talk about history and it's in books and we're on a podcast. What I want to know is, is history visible in Hungary when you walk around? What do you see? 
you know, these different periods that we talked about, Mongols, Ottomans, what have you. Do you see remnants out there, ruins? Yes. Yeah. Hungary is is um, a fascinating place and a wonderful place because history is, is so present. And in some ways, the Hungarians are great obsessive curators of their own history. Obsessive. Um, oh, I love that. So you can you can find Roman ruins in Budapest itself. Um, wow. In the you know, I was just there this, this year and went to the inner city parish church in Pesh. This is this wonderful church, which is right on the Danube. And it has relics from an 11th century saint. It has a little, um, the Mirab, which is, you know, the, the, the niche that was put in there. Oh, where Muslims pray in a mosque. So when this became a mosque under the Ottomans, they, they put a Mirab in there and it's still there. It's been, you know, preserved and, and even painted to, to highlight it. And there's also uh, they Wait, highlighted within a church. I mean, yeah, it's it's still it's right next to the altar with the you know the relics in it. So they oh they, they, wow, so they didn't destroy it or get rid of it or anything. No, no. and and just to, within the past decade, they um, mm-hmm. uncovered a 14th century fresco that had been hidden under the plaster. So this uh, this history is continually revealing itself and emerging, even in this you know the the center of Budapest. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I study this closer than most people, but, you know, there's a lot of news about statues that the, the present government has put up and controversies about this, but there's just some like... That's great... actually precisely why I'm asking this question. I want yeah, to know what the, you see. Yeah, I guess I would, you can see all that. And there's, you know, just as under communism, they put up statues to Stalin and Lenin, but... You know, this this past year I went to the post office museum. You know, they had they have one of those. Um, <laughs> they have you know, plaques, all these plaques on the walls. And there was one I came across that was to an ornithologist. You know, who after World War II, the the collections of the Hungarian Ornithology Society had been destroyed, and he took it upon himself to rebuild their collections and their library. And then you know. 2009, someone decided to put up a plaque remembering this fellow. Um, That's great. Some, yeah, some what there's some really wonderful things that that you might not expect in that. Such as, well, just like the the ornithology that the yeah. this museum, the um, plaques to composers, to writers, even historians get their you know their uh, monuments around Budapest and in other cities. It, there's just a lot more, and it's in some ways inclusive in kind of a, a wonderful way um, that I think you know you might not understand if you just read the newspapers. Or, of you know, course, you're stuff. saying the word you're using the word inclusive, and here we are, uh, you know, uh, listening uh, to news uh, about Mr. Orban and sure. uh, on, on on media outlets such as CNN. It's not always positive, but I love what I'm hearing from you. Going there as an American grandchild of a Hungarian. Do do you have any sense of kinship? Do you sit down and mingle with people? And I don't mean just with historians or sort of in a professional setting. Is is there any sort of recognition that you come from us? 
I think the last name makes sense to people. They, yeah. they know how to pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Unlike me that I have to make sure that I'm pronouncing it correctly. Okay, yeah. So, you know, yeah. That alone. You speak Hungarian? I do. I spent yeah. a lot of long time studying it and then, you oh, know, still speaking it. perfectly. But yeah, you speak a little bit of the language and um, sort of go there with an open mind. The people are very receptive and um, very eager to talk about, you know, the, their history with people. And um, for me, it's just been a great experience. So, yeah, I, I definitely go there and, and talk to as many different people as I can. And I think and I'm repeating myself here, but it, the, the stories they tell are, are much more um, complex, unexpected, and, and it's wonderful than, than, you know, I would have expected just, you know, based on the history books that I had read. So it's, it's yeah, there's just a lot of great stories there and a lot of uh, people who will tell them to you. Sounds like a place that my family and I should go visit. Um, um, you said that, they're eager to speak about their history. Um, you see a lot of countries, uh, especially outside the United States, that are eager to share their past with you. So how do Hungarians perceive their own history? And if I may, let me just sort of couch that in, in, in why I'm asking this question. So like, like, like the French have this sort of sense of grandeur about their history. Um, the Chinese have this sense of always having been a superpower. This is just the period of interruption in the last hundred so years since uh, since they lost Hong Kong to the 1940s. So, you know what what do what do Hungarians think of their past? That's uh, a loaded question. I appreciate that, <laughs> but still, uh, I mean, I think again, it depends on who you ask. Whether you ask professional historians, whether you ask the government or people closely related to it, or whether you ask ordinary people, you might get different answers. You might get the same answer, but you might get very different answers. And I think the Hungarian history, a thousand years covering all these different periods that we've talked about, it depends on what you want to emphasize. If you want to describe Hungary as a place where, you know, migrants have come in, where there's been a lot of mixing, receptive to different people, a place of different uh, religions, you can find that in Hungarian history. If you want to talk about a place that has suffered from, you know, but the, is that what a Hungarian at a bar or a coffee shop would will tell you, or will they bust out and start talking about the Mongol invasion or the Austro-Hungarian? Like, what's the thing that will tell you about? I think the the things that dominate discussion are probably more recent, right? The the yeah. The years of communism and and its legacy. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe it's some of the shortcomings of the years after communism, right? That, that there were promises that maybe weren't achieved. The difficulties of the financial crisis of two thousand eight. These are the things that stick with people. I mean, this is what uh, people think about. Yeah. But if you push them, there are a lot more. You know, they they, they do have long memories, and those can come out because. You know, people know their families, and these families have these, you know, complicated histories. So I'm, you know, like always pushing people to sort of get beyond, you know, the, the here and the now. Do they? Do Hungarians feel like they have a distinct history from other Central European countries? 
I know we talked about their distinct language, but how about their history? Yes, I, I would say that that is probably uh, deeply felt. Um, again, one can find many, many commonalities and, and they do. Um, and there's a lot of comparative history being done in, his, in Hungary, but I think that this sense of being alone and apart is a real thing in part because of language, which is interesting, a, a powerful thing. And I think that is, um, you know, one can like qualify that and, and um, talk about how that, that is not true, but it is a, a real thing. The sense that Hungarians are a little bit different because of their language and, and their culture. Um, Most of us here in the U S don't know that. Sure. Yeah. Don't, don't know this background and, and impacts probably how the politics over there is shaped and, and uh, positioned. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Hungary or, or its history, after everything we talked about, what would it be? You know, I think I would simply encourage you, as you, as you said, to, to, to go there and, and see for yourself. I just think it's a, it's Do Americans visit Hungary? Are there a lot of uh, foreigners there? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's tourism has really boomed in the past decades, and it is. Oh, that's great. Set up for, <laughs> you know, that maybe too much of a good thing, but I would say go there and and see for yourself. I think Hungary and and many of the countries in that region, Poland, Romania, Bosnia, these are just wonderful places that um, I think more people should visit. And it's and it's and it's safe. I asked that question in the context of um, sort of you know people say 10, 15 years ago they would say don't go to Russia, don't walk around Russian cities because it's not so safe. But that's not the case with Hungary. No, I think it's it's very safe. Oh, wonderful! Um, you're in danger of getting overcharged at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're in danger of getting overcharged here in America now, especially because of uh, inflation. Uh, Professor Nemesh, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Professor Nemesh. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks again for having me. It's been a real um, joy to talk about Hungarian history. For sure. For sure. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may 
poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.